It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 189 for April 18th, 2010. Recorded April 17th, 2010. Where to start? This week's TechBiter Worldwide was prepared using the CS5 version of Adobe Dreamweaver and recorded on the CS5 version of SoundBooth. The CS5 Master Collection is gigantic. The beta download took hours because it is 8.8 gigabytes, and installing all of the applications adds a total of 21 items to the start menu. Because of the size and complexity of CS5, I am not currently offering a review of the entire suite, or even of any one application. Instead, I'll be telling you what I found over the next several months, and what I have for you today is the first scouting report, so to speak, into CS5 territory. Adobe has made two decisions that are sure to be criticized by people who don't know what they're talking about. So I'd like to get those out of the way right now. Mac users will find that they cannot install CS5 on any Mac that does not have an Intel processor. This is a good decision. If you're serious enough about your work to use CS5 and you're using a Mac, you are serious enough to have a current computer. After all, even Apple no longer supports non-Intel processors for the new versions of its operating system. And second, if you want to do video productions with Adobe After Effects, you'll need a 64-bit processor. That's Windows and Mac, either one. You can't even install After Effects on a 32-bit system. Another good decision. Video has been bumping up against limitations of 32-bit systems for years. After Effects is a serious professional tool. Professionals will have 64-bit systems and a lot of RAM. The performance difference, by the way, is breathtaking. Some applications, Photoshop, for example, are available in both 32- and 64-bit versions. The installer will select the right version, or in the case of Photoshop, will install both versions on 64-bit systems. So let's start with Photoshop. This version has features that make it a must-buy for any professional photographer and probably for a lot of serious amateur photographers. Photoshop's healing brush, as helpful as it is, often can get things wrong. Adobe has now developed what they call the content-aware healing brush. I don't have enough superlatives to begin to explain why this is such a breakthrough feature. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, there is a link to a video provided by Adobe with product manager Brian Hughes explaining what content-aware healing can do. I take it a little further. Adobe always provides production samples so that tech journalists can follow the lesson plan and repeat what we've been shown. As helpful as those are, I always try to find something that offers a bit more of a challenge. The goal isn't necessarily to make the application fail, but to see if it performs as well in real-life situations as it did in the demo. So, I started with a picture of a barn in eastern Ohio's Amish country. You'll see this image on the TechBinder Worldwide website. The image is open in camera raw, and you'll see a utility pole, some wires, a lot of clutter that really would be nice to remove. The starting image I show, I've improved the lighting and contrast a bit, just as I would have in the CS4 version of Photoshop. With CS4, I might have been able to remove some of the problems by using the clone stamp, but it would have taken hours, literally hours. It would have been tedious, and the results, at least for me, would have been obvious. 
So I selected the content-aware healing brush and started to take out the power lines. What amazed me is how fast it was. It took about 45 seconds to remove an entire power line that went across a barn. There were a few small leftover artifacts that I was able to remove with a second pass. I could have done all this, actually, with the clone stamp, but not this well. And I certainly couldn't have done it in 45 seconds. So then I went for the larger challenge. There's that utility pole at the left side of the barn. You just have to check the website to see this one. Although I used the content-aware healing brush, I could just as easily have used content-aware fill. I would have gotten similar results with this. When I selected the power pole and removed it, it was gone, and the fill-in was really pretty good, but you could tell that something had still been there. So it was an excellent start, a huge time saver. It would have taken, again, hours to get this far with the clone tool. To finish the image, all I needed to do was a bit of additional work with the clone stamp and a little bit with the content-aware healing brush. I'm working with a 10-megabyte RAW file on a 64-bit computer that has 8 gigabytes of RAM, and that does make a difference. The process required just slightly more than an hour. On CS4, if I had been able to do work that good in a day, I would have been surprised. I said there would be no full review of any application, and that is true. That's all I'm going to tell you about Photoshop right now. You'll hear more about it in later programs. Let's move on to InDesign. Way back in 2004, when I reviewed InDesign CS, I asked why InDesign couldn't create text that spans columns. Shortly thereafter, I was summoned to Seattle, and I found myself in a conference room with the InDesign product manager and a dozen or so members of the InDesign development team. In my review, I had pointed out that although InDesign did a lot of things really well, it came up a bit short in some comparisons with Ventura Publisher. For the next hour or so, I described tasks that I thought Ventura did better than InDesign. Questions were asked, workflow was discussed, notes were taken. Since then, Adobe has released CS2, CS3, and CS4. Each new version has offered new features and better ways to do things, but creating a multi-column head still required making a special frame for the headline, placing the headline in the frame, and rearranging everything in the page. You notice I used past tense there. Each new version until now. And is as typical of Adobe developers, they have reached even further. They have created an associated feature that I find delightful, even though the need for it never occurred to me. The extra feature takes a collection of paragraphs and formats them into multiple columns within a single column. Why would you want to do that? Think short bulleted list. And I've got another video for you from Adobe Group Product Manager Michael Ninnis. He explains how the features work, and you can see that video. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The ability to have a headline span multiple columns is probably the least exciting new feature of InDesign, but it's one that I've been watching for and waiting for. As Michael Ninnis says in the video, this was a much-requested edition. Even so, I do feel a tiny bit responsible for this one, and it was definitely worth the wait. I'll cover InDesign in more detail in a later program. So what have they done with Illustrator, you might ask? Well, let's start with this. There are two kinds of graphics. There are raster, bitmap, or pixel, and vector. Raster-based applications, such as Photoshop, produce photorealistic images, and vector-based applications, Adobe Illustrator, for example, produce images that can be scaled to any size without suffering an attack of the jaggies. Everybody knows this, just as everybody once knew that the world was flat. 
Well, the world is no longer flat, and Adobe Illustrator now has the bristle brush feature, which changes just about everything. I am not an artist. That's obvious. So to understand why this feature is so important, you'll need to watch a video with Adobe Illustrator Senior Product Manager David Macy. There's a link to that video from the TechBiter Worldwide website. But something more in my experience range is the ability to fix ugly dashes. If you're working with text, you might want a dashed outline around it or any other object that you've created. When you create the dashed line, sometimes the dashes don't align properly at corners. You'll see an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website where I have converted text to outlines and then applied a dashed outline. And there are three letters that are particularly worth looking at, H, I, and T. These letters look absolutely horrid because of the way the dashes place themselves at the corners. But Illustrator now has an automatic dash adjustment option, and it fixes most problems without the need for any intervention. I tested this with text because it makes the problem painfully obvious, but dash adjustment will be even more useful for non-text applications. Adobe now provides a bridge to everywhere. Adobe Bridge was one of the most useful utility applications in the CS4 suite, and it's even better in CS5. Now, there's a mini-bridge that you can open within the various applications. In testing, I opened it in Photoshop. It takes just the size of a small panel on the screen. The mini-bridge makes it easy to find and open images in Photoshop or Camera Raw. You can also switch to the full-size version of Bridge if you want to. Previously, with an overloaded 32-bit computer, I elected not to have Bridge start with Windows. Now that I'm running the 64-bit version of Windows on a machine with a reasonable amount of memory, I'm rethinking that decision. And I have to mention this. Even the installer is better. It's bigger, it's easier to read, and during the installation process, you'll need to set up an Adobe ID if you don't already have one. This is what you'll use for Adobe Live CS, and also if you need support from Adobe. By default, everything is marked to be installed, including the voice recognition files for many languages. I deselected all of those. By default, After Effects will be deselected on a 32-bit machine, and if you try to select it, you will be told that After Effects works only on 64-bit machines. If you're a video professional, this won't be a surprise to you. Adobe has been talking about this change for well over a year. If you have a previous version of Adobe Creative Suite installed, CS5 will leave the previous version alone. Thank you, Adobe. In some cases, Dreamweaver, for example, settings will be brought over from the previous version. My sole complaint about the installer is that at the end of the installation, I was warned that something had failed, but I wasn't told what. I started the installer again so I could see which component had failed to install. The only components missing were the language files, and I had omitted them intentionally, so it wasn't a failure. That may be fixed by the time the shipping version goes out. How about a quick glance at Flash? No matter how you slice it, working with Flash has never, ever been easy. The interface just hasn't been intuitive even to people who spend a lot of time with time-based graphics, formerly known as animation. Flash Catalyst makes it possible for designers and other people who are not Flash professionals to create basic Flash graphics. And unlike other applications with similar goals from other companies, Flash Catalyst offers the ability to create files that can then be opened in Flash and modified, not just played. So it gives you a good starting point for a file that you can then hand off to a Flash professional. 
Because the target audience for Flash Catalyst is designers, users may start new projects from Photoshop files or Illustrator files. In the past, the designer would mock something up using one of those programs and then send it to the Flash coder who would have to recreate everything in Flash. Now the designer can just start the project and hand it off to the Flash Pro. I'd like to show you some samples from Flash Catalyst and from some of the other components, but that's all going to have to wait until another time. As I said, this is a huge suite of applications, and it's going to take more than a few programs to cover even the basics. For now, just a quick look at the cost. Let's start at the top for the greatest sticker shock and work backwards. The Master Collection. That includes absolutely everything. $2,600 for a new installation. Production premium and web premium moving down are $1,900 and $1,800, respectively. Again, this is the full application, not an upgrade. Upgrade prices are typically going to be less than half of that. They also have design premium and design standard at $1,700 and $1,300. Missing this year is the web standard version. Adobe says that is due to feedback from customers. I think that means they didn't sell any of those. Upgrade prices depend on the suite you own already and the suite you want to upgrade to. There's a complete summary of all the prices on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If, for example, you need just a single application, it really doesn't hurt that much. And if you're upgrading from a previous version, figure that the prices are going to be about half what you see. But again, those are in the PDF from Adobe. People you work with may be in another area of the building, on another floor, across town, or halfway around the world. Adobe CS Live online services are designed to make collaborating with these people easy, regardless of where they are. By linking your design and production tools to the connectivity of the Internet, CS Live online services accelerate publication reviews, and they improve the ability to test website design in various browsers. You can share your desktop with coworkers and discuss text, graphics, colors, and placement. Adobe CS Live includes Adobe CS Review, Acrobat.com, Adobe Browser Lab, Site Catalyst, NetAverages, and Adobe Story. I'll describe these in greater detail in subsequent programs. They are available from within many of the CS5 applications. Adobe CS Live is provided without charge for the first 12 months. After that, a monthly or annual subscription fee will apply. That fee has not yet been determined. So what's the bottom line here? There's no question that Creative Suite 5 will earn a high rating. But I haven't yet even worked with all of the apps. What I've seen so far tells me that graphics professionals, publication designers, photographers are all going to be standing in line salivating. Right now there is no cat rating because I haven't seen everything yet. For more information, you can visit the Adobe website, and there's a link there from the TechBiter Worldwide website. <laughs> This turns out to be kind of a nice tie-in with the previous topic. I had wanted to provide you with an update on 64-bit computing and how it's going. Well, imagine this. You own a 1989 Yugo GV, but you've suddenly come into a large sum of money, and you trade your 1989 Yugo GV in for a 2010 Rolls-Royce Ghost. What differences might you notice? I have never owned a Yugo GV although I did once own a Fiat 128, which is what the Yugo is based on, and I have never owned, driven, or even been a passenger in any sort of Rolls-Royce. But what I experienced in moving from a 32-bit operating system to a 64-bit operating system made me think of that comparison. In short, it's been astonishing. 
For me, the primary advantage of 64-bit computing is the amount of addressable memory. A 32-bit system is limited to approximately 4 gigabytes of RAM, including memory used by the video subsystem. That means the operating system and applications will have somewhere between 2 and 3 gigabytes of RAM available, even if you have the full 4 installed. I have a lot of applications running most of the time, and the 32-bit version of Windows simply ran out of RAM. When that happens, the operating system swaps information that would like to be in RAM to the disk. At some point, the swapping becomes so frequent that the disk drives become swamped with the constant swapping. That's what was happening to me. The computer regularly ground to a halt. I blamed the Microsoft indexing service. I blamed the Carbonite backup service. But regardless of what services I disabled, the problem persisted. Eventually, I had to see the truth. In a 64-bit environment, I have not encountered that problem, not even once, and that alone is almost enough to make the upgrade worthwhile. When combined with the improvements realized by using 64-bit versions of applications such as Photoshop, it's an even easier decision. This week, for example, I made the mistake of cropping an image from the Franklin Park Conservatory to 800 inches by 600 inches at a 100 pixel per inch resolution. I, of course, meant 800 pixels by 600 pixels, not 800 inches by 600 inches. Even so, the process started, and after several minutes, as I sat there puzzled wondering why it was taking so long, it almost completed. Now, that would have resulted in an image 80,000 pixels wide and 60,000 pixels tall. A stupid request such as that on a 32-bit system probably would have locked it up, and if it had been able to complete, it would have taken days, not minutes. Still, the overall rule has to be not to ask your computer to do something stupid. 64-bit systems don't come without disadvantages, though. My iPod doesn't work properly with a 64-bit version of iTunes, although this may actually be a hardware problem. I might be able to fix the problem by updating the system's BIOS, but my workaround so far has been to sync the iPod with a notebook computer that's still running a 32-bit version of Windows 7 and a 32-bit version of iTunes. A nearly antique HP iPack doesn't connect reliably to the 64-bit Windows 7 machine. This could be a hardware problem, could be a firmware problem, could be a software problem. But the Windows mobile device does connect reliably to my notebook computer, so I synchronize between home and office machines with the iPack and the notebook, and then copy my Outlook file from the notebook to the desktop. Clumsy? Yeah, but it works. If you use Google Calendar Sync, it does not yet work with 64-bit systems. I can't use Microsoft Groove on a 64-bit system because the features I want to use won't work there. That's a Microsoft problem. My workaround has been to use Always Sync. Audio from the sound system's built-in ASIO driver is not recognized by Adobe Audition, but I can record using a USB-connected device with SoundBooth and then edit in Audition. I, of course, found that there is no 64-bit driver for my Epson Perfection 3200 scanner. Although a third-party company has a $40 application that will fix the problem, I can run the scanner under Linux, and that's what I do. And finally, WordPerfect 5.1 will not run under Windows 7 64-bit. Although this is true, there are ways to run WordPerfect 5.1 on a 64-bit Windows system. But I have to wonder why anyone would really do this. Even though I have faithfully loaded WordPerfect 5.1 on every computer I've owned since the mid-1980s, I really haven't used it for more than two decades. 
Bottom line on 64-bit operating systems, they are no longer the future. Whenever you replace the computer you have now, very seriously consider replacing it with a system that runs a 64-bit version of Windows and that can hold a lot of RAM. 8 gigabytes is not excessive these days. This is particularly true if digital photography or digital video are important to you. In short circuits, sitting in my anti-spam inbox, there was a message that promised I could test an iPad for a month and then, as a reward, keep it for free. The website says 25,000 beta testers are needed. Why? The iPad isn't a beta device anymore. I had noticed the stench of rat, but the website was very convincing, except for a few trivial matters. The most critical concern I have is that there is no business model for beta testing a product that's already shipping. Apple has done all the testing it needs to do and will conduct future development based on feedback from those who bought the first edition iPad. So who would hire a company to perform this beta testing? Apple is not behind this because Apple doesn't work this way. If Apple were to give away 25,000 iPads, they would give them to tech writers like me. But Apple doesn't work that way either. It's nearly impossible to pry any test hardware out of Apple. And if you do, the time you have to work with it is very short. And yes, you do have to return it. So I don't exactly want to say that this email is a fraud. But I do want to point out that the site is registered by a company in the Bahamas. According to the computer industry, the recession seems to be over. Intel's first quarter results met the company's and Wall Street's expectations. In fact, it beat them. Intel reported net income of $2.4 billion, 42 cents a share, on revenue of a little more than $10 billion. That was up almost 45% from last year. Wall Street analysts had been expecting earnings of $0.38 cents per share on revenue of less than $10 billion. So that was quite a beat. I quote Intel's website, on which Intel President and CEO Paul Ottolini says, The investments we're making in leading-edge technology are delivering the most compelling product lineup in our history. These leadership products, combined with growing worldwide demand and continued outstanding execution, resulted in Intel's best first quarter ever. Looking forward, we're optimistic about our business as Intel products are designed into a variety of new and exciting segments. Corporate communications folks always seem to think that blather such as that impresses people. What really happened is this. Companies that held off on purchases of computer hardware during the recession realized that now would be a good time to buy, so they bought. As a result of the increased demand for computers, Intel realized record profits. Hewlett-Packard says that it is cooperating fully with German and Russian authorities after Russian police raided the Moscow offices of HP. The company is accused of paying bribes to win Russian government contracts. HP executives are accused of paying nearly $11 million in bribes in 2003 to win a $48 million contract for equipment, this according to the Wall Street Journal. In addition to cooperating with Russian and German investigators, Hewlett-Packard is conducting its own internal investigation. The company says that the investigation involves conduct from more than six years ago, conduct by employees who are no longer with the company. 
The probe began in 2009 after German tax authorities reviewed the books of a small company in the East German state of Saxony. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.